0: and get started on the next session, and I just want to introduce, we're going to be talking about preclinical and imaging in uh, device iteration. Um, Al Sinusis, who is the director of the non-invasive imaging at Yale, is going to be moderating the session, so I'm going to turn it over to you, Al. Okay, well, might as well get started. So, the, we're going to start off the session. Uh, Michael Joner is going to uh, begin giving, talking about preclinical evaluation, uh, case examples, how the pathologist can streamline device development. Ladies and gentlemen, first, let me thank you for inviting me. It's a very stimulating meeting, and you should be congratulated for this meeting. Um, so, my task will be, um, as this is an innovation summit, I thought about talking about the most contemporary developments in the field of cardiovascular science and not talk about drug eluding stents because we've heard that for many, many years or decades already. And I was trying to focus on the four topics where we heard a lot of discussion already today which is drug-coated balloons, which we haven't touched upon as yet, bioresorbable scaffolds, tarver devices, and devices for renal denervation. So let's start with drug-coated balloons. one of the statements that you can actually read on the website of the FDA and many other regulatory um, institutions is that the primary goal of preclinical testing is always to demonstrate safety first with some expectation of effectiveness prior to clinical testing, for whatever that means. Characterize the drug load and coding integrity and coding consistency. Now we're referring to drug coated balloons. The question is how much drug is delivered to the vessel wall and how much is lost in transit? And what is left on the balloon? What are the release kinetics, blood and tissue kinetics? And also, what do the organs look like? Are there signs of toxicity? And then, ultimately, a very important question, is there concern for downstream embolization of particulates? Now, this is a table out of our recent review, um, which lists the current available devices. Most of them have CE mark. others don't. And what you will find, all of them are using paclitaxel as the proliferative drug on these devices. But what distinguishes them is that they have different excipients or solvents in order to facilitate transfer of Paclitaxel into the vascular tissue. Now why is it so important to look carefully at these devices from a pathological point of view? Simply because Paclitaxel is a very potent drug. Small amounts already are enough to inhibit cellular proliferation and migration for such a long time that we really need to be carefully looking at these devices. What are the differences between drug-coated uh, stents, uh, drug-coated balloons, sorry, and drug-eluting stents that we already know from, uh, for many years? The drug content is very low um, uh, compared to the very high drug, can, uh, drug content on drug-coated balloons. It's approximately 10 times higher, 10 to 100 times sometimes even. The transfer is very slow in DES. While it's rapid, it needs to be transferred all at once in drug-coated balloons. And also, you don't have a polymer. you rather use an excipient. And there are also other balloons which don't use any solvents at all. And you can see the differences also. After deployment, there's more uniform drug distribution in the vessel wall. And these are the things that make them substantially different to what we know from drug-eluting stents. Now, what are we looking at, at histopathology? The key parameters, of course, is endothelial loss. You are interested in fibrin and platelets, as you can see here, because this becomes a very important indirect Marker of effective drug transfer only those that show fibrin are effective drug coated balloons Inflammation injury you're also looking at loss of smooth muscle cells, which is a sign of drug delivery proteoglycan deposition and fibrosis and Here are some examples what sections look like after drug coated balloon treatment And you can see here we graded into minimal mild or moderate sometimes even severe and you can see the fibrin again a very important sign of successful transfer of paclitaxel the same is true for proteoglycan deposition, as you can see here, and inflammation. It is very important that you understand it is difficult to show efficacy when, when it comes to regulatory assessment of drug, uh, drug-coded balloons. It's all about safety. In a similar way, in the FDA also requests you to do um, inflations of repeated balloons that meet higher doses in order to establish a safety margin. So, you need to clearly understand what dose is still effective without showing signs of toxicity. And this is such a sign of toxicity when you have fibrin with thrombi that may ultimately also result in scarring of the media in these toxic concentrations of paclitaxel. And even more important, it is because we have learned throughout the last years with drug coated balloons that the most effective ones are those that have crystalline um, formulations on the bo- on the coated balloon and that tells you also once you have crystals they can embolize and the problem here is we've known in this it's been shown in this very elegant study by Dr. Kelch that the split of during inflation dry inflation is very high and it doesn't really depend on the type that you're using it's it's almost the same in all of the, these uh, drug-coated balloons that are on the market and there's a lot of loss a loss of the drug during the passage and only very few drug remains on the balloon. so that tells you it has to go somewhere the drug and we most often find it in the distal bed here you see myocardium where you see fibronite necrosis coronary emboli and also in the distal muscle you sometimes see it however i also have to tell you that the clinical significance of this has not been established as yet so to summarize drug-coated balloons what are the clinically relevant findings here to assure long-term efficacy in absence of adverse vascular effects such as aneurysm formation, to avoid excess stent layers causing sustained inflammation and poor clinical outcomes, and also to help um, avoid adverse effects on end organs and improve wound healing, especially in those patients with critical limb ischemia, as more and more of these devices are coming to the market for peripheral applications. Now let's switch to the next one. We have already discussed this one, a renal denervation, very hot topic today. And some of the things that I show you may not uh, any longer apply, but I hope that I can still tell you that the pathologist is very important to look at the safety of these devices, because um, we want to characterize local, regional, and systemic effects of renal denervation procedures. Also, what are the effects on vascular, perivascular, and organ tissue? And what is the uh, penetration depth of this uh, denervation energy? This is very important to learn. And other concerns for thromboembolism, declining kidney function, and so on. And what are the effects, of course, with respect to efficacy on, on nerves per se? I have to tell you that, other than other devices uh, like drug-coated balloons or drug-eluting stents, we have no standardized evaluation preclinically. And that's some of the problems we have to face nowadays. And we strongly need semi-quantitative assessment for these effects that we see. Maybe even immunohistochemistry, I'll show you some examples to tell you about the functional um, changes that you cause um, in in these nerves. Now what we are doing is we're looking at the nerve injury that is shown here, and you look both at the epineurium and also at the endoneurium. This is a perfect example of severe injury of the nerve. You see digestion chambers, apoptosis occurring, and if it's even more severe, you see complete fibrosis of this nerve. On the other hand, you also have to look at the artery itself. Make sure that there's no scarring occurring, and the parameters that we look at is endothelial loss, smooth muscle cell changes, not only with respect to the depth, but also the circumference of the artery. Because you have to imagine that renal denervation is a three-dimensional procedure, you treat the entire circumference of the artery. And this is also why we, as pathologists, need to carefully look at all quadrants that have been treated. Why is it important? Simply clinically, it has already been reported that you have adverse effects even after renal denervation. And this is a study published in the European Heart Journal that shows there is thrombus formation detected by OCT after renal denervation. And we have also published that preclinically, where you can see thrombus formation also proven by histopathology. What about the functional changes that occur? There are different markers, as you can see here, um, that Most of them lack some specificity for either efferent or efferent markers and however there are some such as the tyroxine hydroxylase or Substance P where you can see this mostly stains Sensory afferent markers or calcitonine gene-related peptide and you can use those in immunohistochemistry Studies to study and learn more about what really occurs after renal denervation And this is an example that we did at our institution where you can see in green The sensory markers stained and in red the efferent markers such as tyrosine hydroxylase And this hopefully will help us in the future to us understand really what is the feedback mechanism? Is it involved in the treatment effect observed in renal denervation and to what extent is it observed? To summarize again, it is important to facilitate our understanding about the effects of renal denervation We also want to ensure absence of vascular complications such as renal artery stenosis or dissections. We also want to help avoid adverse effects on organs as observed here preclinically. Preclinically, you can see this is an infarction of the kidney. <coughs> Let's switch over to bioresorbable scaffolds, an important part for the pathologists also. I want to summarize here quickly what we are looking at. Apart from the fact that we always have to look at safety and some expectation of efficacy we have to clearly characterize deployment characteristics in these bioresorbable scaffolds and failure modes it's very important what is the mechanism of biodegradation and what are the degradation products and what are their biologic effects so this is the first question that the FDA will uh, will uh, will um, ask ask you basically what are the coatings and the drug loading characteristics and there has to be special focus on the mechanical integrity and vascular responses during and after degradation now I want to show you two examples of what we assess you have seen part of these images previously this is coming from the BVS studies that we have performed, the preclinical part, and what us, um, what is of interest to us is what occurs after these or during the degradation of these devices. We carefully need to look and see if there's inflammation occurring in the surrounding of the struts or not. And you can see here, there's very little inflammation occurring over time, and that's a good sign. On the other hand, you also need to understand and learn for yourself how long does it take to degrade for your device. And in this particular case, We have done consecutive studies over four years. You can see that it has been mentioned already. First of all, you see polysaccharide deposition that then gets infiltrated by smooth muscle cells. But you also want to understand if polymer is still present. And you can easily see that in this polarized light, polymer is seen between 18 and 24 months, and then it's gone over time. Imaging plays a very important role in bioresorbable scaffolds. And the reason for that is that we have to be honest and tell you that histopathology also has its limitations, simply because you process the artery and shrinkage will always occur when you um, when you do de- um, dehydration of these arteries. And therefore, you also have to have imaging in parallel in these animals to be done, and also later in humans. So this explains you: you have to have both histopathology and intravascular imaging. It's very important for regulatory purposes. Another good example of showing you how improved preclinical testing can result in great success is the magnesium stent that is manufactured by Biotronic, which was almost a disaster in the first in the first round when high late loss and TLR were observed. So there was clear need for longer scaffolding support and addition, maybe even of an antiproliferative drug. And so throughout many years and different generations. Um, improvements have been performed uh, to these um, scaffolds to the backbone and also a polymer and the drug was added And that finally resulted in excellent preclinical results with little inflammation Low degradation at the time point of 180 days And also you can see there's little recoil observed And with this in mind you have, um, you can, you have the confidence to go into clinical trials and test your device again So why, again, to summarize, why is preclinical assessment so important? To facilitate our understanding about the advantages of virus orbital scaffolds over conventional drug-eluting stents. Also to ensure late vascular complications such as stent thrombosis, long-term inflammation, aneurysm formation, and also neoethosclerosis that has been observed with uh, even second-generation drug-eluting stents. And also to help avoid adverse effects on organs, especially the myocardium. Last but not least, I want to show you something about Tarver devices, and you all know that um, one of the most historical um, challenges was to come up with a porcine xenograft in 1976, uh, which then finally resulted in the first porcine um, um, percutaneous valve that was implanted by Anderson in 89, and then followed by Cribier in 2002. And these, uh, this slide just shows you the diversity of different images that are on the market or are about to come on the market and are assessed preclinically. And what we're looking at is exactly what we've learned from the past. These are bioprosthetic valves surgically expanded, and what you can find is pannus formation. So these are the most important failure modes of valves. On top of everything is calcification. One of it's, it's the most important failure mode. Thrombus formation. Sometimes you even see tears, and This is showing you a normal um, valve and PANAS neointimal overgrowth you can see here. And it's exactly what we're looking at with these transcutaneous implantable uh, artificial valves. We're looking at the same things. And again, I want to tell you that calcification, and this is the case that had been implanted for a very long time, it's a core valve. I will show you the histopathology of it in the next slide. And there is calcification. It is an important failure mode even of TAVR devices. We also see endocarditis and um, coronary obstruction of the native leaflets and late thrombus formation. You can see a nice paravalvular leak here. These are things that we see by gross pathology. When you look at the histopathology, this is a perfect example that shows you severe calcification of the native valve that also results in an oval shape of the, of the um, percutaneous implanted valve that had a para- paravalvular leak at the end. So what are we looking at by histopathology? We can clearly define pannus overgrowth, structural changes of the leaflets, calcification I've shown you, and fibrin thrombus. Um, that is all graded on the same quantitative score, and we can assess this by histopathology. And this is one example just to illustrate to you. This is done in a sheep model. And what is clearly seen is the most important failure mode of valves, again, is calcification. And we can look at this using these preclinical models. We also have to admit these models are limited. There are no deceased models, but we can see at least the most important failure modes, and it has to be done thoroughly. This is another example of what we can look at, although I have to admit this is a human case of an Edward Sapien, uh, sapien valve that had been implanted for nine days in an 85-year-old, 80, and you can see there's thrombus formation between the leaflet and the stent struts, and that finally resulted in severe returgitation in this valve and had to be explanted again. Why is this so important, what we're doing by pathology? Because this is a literature review um, that is about to be published, about the uh, 69 cases that are published so far. What are the most important failure modes? And those are highlighted in red. And you can see these are the ones that we can also judge by histopathology. So it's important to look at these valves in preclinical animal models. However, and this is an important point, long-term data are needed because results from surgical bioprosthetic valves show degradation only occurs beyond five years. So we really need to learn long-term data and see long-term data in these patients. I want to summarize everything. Innovation in cardiovascular device development is strongly needed to improve individualized patient care Preclinical assessment is mandatory to understand about potential safety concerns and to elucidate mechanisms associated with device success and or failure And I also think this is an important point the gap between preclinical and clinical evaluation is partly caused by the lack of appropriate preclinical animal models um, Reflecting human disease conditions, and I think we have to work on this in the future Dedicated research is certainly warranted to address these issues um, to further streamline device development. Thank you so much